Let's jump into the Word today. Uh, we're in a series called Jesus is King, and I'm going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, which you read a couple of weeks ago. You'll see why in just a second. And then today's actual text is Mark 20 through 25. Let's read, I'll pray, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I ask that you would illuminate it. Uh, may the words of our mouth and meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. And um, Lord, may I speak as the, uh, as the oracles of God. May my tongue be like the pen of a ready writer today. In Jesus' name. Mark 11, 12 through, 24, uh, through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. <clears throat> when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not in season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 20 says, and they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This was a miracle. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them and said, I think with a smile, have faith in God. Still smiling, I think Jesus said, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes those things which he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And some translation says he will have whatever he says. This is an astounding thing for Jesus to say. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, I tell you, look at the vastness of these next few words. Whatever you ask in prayer. Believe that you receive it. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If, any, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I learned to pray big bold prayers from my father. I learned to pray from my mother, but I learned to pray from my dad. If I could take you back to our small country parsonage where my family lived in rural, the rural country town of Wrightsville, Georgia in 1983, I'd sneak you back into my dad's office, <clears throat> and there you'd see a diploma on the wall from Georgia Southern University. He put that up there proudly. It took him five different colleges to get it, and he finally got that degree. He played college basketball. He got kicked out of school. He played college basketball at another school. He got kicked out of another school, and he was so proud of that diploma. You see a gym bag on the floor with basketball shoes and smelly socks, and you see hundreds of cassette tapes of preachers and teachers You'd see tons of books on prayer on the shelves. And right on, the, on his desk, 
You'd see a tattered Bible highlighted upon highlights upon highlights and notes. The thing was just about to fall apart. And then right there next to his Bible, you'd see a big old stack of three-by-five cards with a hole punched through them and a ring through those cards. Most likely, the very top card you would see in the first part of that year would have the name Molten Tillman on it. The corners of this particular card were well-worn, the ink smeared from sweat or tears. Every time my dad would go to a new church in a new town, he would get all the names of the people of the church and all the names of the new people he'd meet, and he'd write them on this three-by-five card, these three-by-five cards, and he would walk through the woods in the heat of the Georgia summer, and he would pray, and he would cry, and he would cry out to God. This particular card, I don't remember what it said, but in my imagination, it says, Molten Tillman, one eye, angry. Molten Tillman was angry, not because he just had one eye, but maybe because he just had one eye. Molten Tillman had cancer, prostate cancer. And Molten was an angry man. He'd lived a rough life, but it was not supposed to end so soon. So my dad started praying for Molten Tillman in these long walks in the woods, crying out to God that God would miraculously heal Molten Tillman. In fact, he started fasting, begging God to heal this man. One day, two day, three day, water only. One week, two weeks, three weeks, 21 day fasting for God to reach down and heal this man. My dad was listening to all these faith preachers, all these healing preachers. My dad was scouring the Bible, looking for verses to build his faith, to pray for a miracle for this man to be healed. And after 21 days, he finally went up to the hospital to go see Molten Tillman. But Molten was angry. He was mad at the world. He was mad at God. And specifically, acutely, Molten Tillman was angry at the preacher, the Reverend J. Stephen Posey, a.k.a. my dad. Molten cursed my dad. Would not let him breathe a word of prayer kicked him out of the hospital room, a gesture that was itself a kind of prayer. There's nothing you can do for me, preacher. I don't want your God, and I don't want you. A few days later, in spite of my dad's fervent prayers, those words came true. Molten Tillman died. Why doesn't prayer work? You've prayed. 
why doesn't prayer work? My dad left that hospital room dejected and confused. As he's walking down the hall, he sees another church member who begs him to come into the hospital room to pray for her friend. Her friend did not know God. Her friend didn't know about prayer. But at the invitation to pray, my dad said yes. My dad laid hands on this individual and that person left the hospital totally and completely healed. Why does God answer prayer? Prayer is a universal language. Already today, before any of us showed up at this church service, Catholics recited the prayers of historic saints. Jews have written their pleas to Yahweh on pieces of paper and wedged them into cracks in the wailing wall. Buddhists have meditatively emptied themselves, searching for the enlightened state of self-forgetfulness. Tibetan monks have spun a wheel of wadded-up journal prayers on it like a game of divine roulette, believing that it sends somehow those prayers to heaven, wishing, hoping, praying that their prayers will be heard. And somewhere right now, a staunch, angry, godless person, an atheist, has buried her head in her hands on a hospital bed, crying out to a God she doesn't even believe exists. One out of six people in the globe prays to Allah five times a day. There are whole communities of Hasidic Jews that still order their lives around gathering three times a day at the temple to pray. 25% of the world's population prays the Lord's Prayer specifically just on Easter Sunday alone. The fact that you're sitting today in a sacred space of worship in the modern Western world makes you a sociological anomaly. Church attendance is declining in every statistical measure everywhere in the Western world. And by the way, I think that's going to change right here at Reality Santa Barbara. Though we are in a post-Christian city, God is up to something here. But in spite of all of that, in spite of the fact that church seems to be on the decline, on the decline, prayer is not. Prayer is as strong and as profuse as it ever has been in the Western world. According to Gallup research, more Americans will pray than exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work this week. Nine out of ten Americans pray regularly. Three-fourths pray every day. And Bruce Springsteen, the boss, in the twilight of his career, released a two-and-a-half-hour uh, two concert on Netflix in which the boss ended by praying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come right off the lips of Jesus to the adoring crowd. Any way you measure it, everybody prays. People 
who don't want your testimony will take your prayer. People who don't care anything about your God will risk a word or two in prayer. In the confusing space between doubt and belief, prayer is the language that still speaks. Even Molten Tillman in his anger, cursing, rejecting the faith-healing preacher, was lifting up a kind of prayer. Everybody wants their prayers to work, but nobody seems to know how prayer works. Each of the Gospels is like a kind of a documentary-style film of the life of Jesus, and each filmmaker, so to speak, uses the story technology of their, uh, technology of their day to craft a story through a particular lens to say something about the life of Jesus. Mark, in his gospel, um, is a story of action. If Mark's gospel was an actual documentary, it would be a very fast-paced documentary. The pace of his writing is frenetic, more frenetic than the other gospels. It could be because John Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, is recording the perspective of or the sermons of Peter, the close disciple of Jesus. Peter, of course, himself was a man of action. He was impulsive. But because of this style, John Mark has jam-packed meaning through symbols in his narrative. Each symbol, he mentions, is a kind of a hyperlink into the rest of Hebrew Scripture. These symbols, these illustrations, these living parables that Jesus is doing, cursing the fig tree, upending the tables of the temple, are kinds of parables. They're hyperlinks jam-packed with meaning that if you'll slow down and you look at the meaning, you'll see a whole world of significance open to you. So for my fellow Bible nerds and even people who have a cursory knowledge of Scripture, you might find meaning in this. I'm going to read this Scripture again, the last part of our Scripture today, and just see if you can see the hyperlinks that John Mark is including here. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them saying, have faith in God. And truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things were to come, come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and you'll be, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Trees, fig leaves, belief, doubt, heart, mountain, sea, heaven, trespasses, forgiveness. What do all of these symbols bring to mind, Bible nerds? What do you think of? What do you think of when you think of these images? What, uh, let me just tell you, to a first century Jew or even to a first century Roman, these words would have leapt off the page at you. You would have seen significant meaning in these. 
in the history of Israel, real prayer was done in certain places. Trees, mountains, and the places that signified trees, mountains, and gardens. Synagogues, tabernacles, and temples. Real, real, real prayer was done at certain times. There were daily, seasonal, and yearly appointed times of prayer. Times to walk with the voice of God in the cool of the day. And prayer was done with and by certain people. Sacrificial systems allowed you to have access to God that you didn't have access to before. The priests would offer your prayers to God. But synagogues and temples were designated spaces with elegant reminders of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, we don't just see how God created the earth. We see why God created the earth. God's, God, God created the heavens and the earth, and he, cre he created us in his image to partner with him, to be with him, to image his glory and his goodness. The Garden of Eden story to any first century Jew or any first century person would have seen, would have looked like a mountain garden temple or a city. Adam met God through at a breathtakingly beautiful tree of life and a lush garden on top of a mountain. And guess what? The temple also reminded them that they were going toward a mountain temple with a tree in the middle. The Messiah would arrive on a mountain. And by the way, the Gentiles had similar ideas. Though not in the worship of Yahweh, but their cities surrounded their temples of worship to Baal and Ashtoreth and Artemis. And when they, didn't, when they didn't have cities, they would go to high hills or to tall trees, and they would have their worship there, often involving sex or sacrifice. They were trying to encounter God. They were trying to appease the gods, to get the gods to see them, to see their plight, to answer their prayers. And oh, by the way, we moderns do the same thing. Think of the great cities of this world. Instead of massive trees in the middle of mountaintop gardens, our skylines look like mountains and our tallest buildings like trees. And whether it's Manhattan or Tulsa or Santa Barbara, we have to have our dedicated green space. Every city itself is a kind of prayer, a place where people bring their faith. The poor and the houseless come to cities to find relief. The minorities come to cities to find more people like them. The, the, it's, it's where uh, the wounded come to find healing. The lonely come to find community. The purposeless come to find purpose. And we vacation in these temple places, these places to find relief, to be seen. A dear friend of mine, Blake Zimmerman, one of the pastors at Church on the Move, uh, just took his daughters to Disney World in Florida for the first time. And he sent me pictures, and I couldn't help but notice what Disney World looks like. And as I'm studying this, 
What does it look like? It looks like a beautiful utopia, a garden of Eden, whether it's Cinderella's castle in the middle of Magic Kingdom or in the animal kingdom, a massive tree. Where do we go to find happiness? The happiest place on earth is a kind of prayer. Everybody prays. Everybody hopes their prayers work. But do we know how prayer works? Jesus, the revolutionary, the disruptor of falsehood, turns each of these images on its head. He rides down on the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on a donkey and then does not start the violent coup d'etat that the Israelites were hoping for to overthrow Rome. He fashions a whip and prophetically signals judgment on the temple of Israel and then turns around and leaves. And now Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, stands next to a tree, a tree that had promised fruitfulness, a tree that had promised life, but a tree that was full of lies. Jesus stands next to a cursed tree, a falsehood tree, and Jesus pronounces a curse. And the disciples marvel at this. Think about everything Jesus has just done. Think about all the things that they could have commented on. But I love the fact that they can't help themselves after they see Jesus pronounce a curse. A curse, as we mentioned, is a kind of prayer. And they watch that Jesus' curse actually works. His prayer actually works in a world where prayers aren't working, in a world where everywhere you look, people are trying to access God in the wrong way. They're looking at trees that are full of leaves, making promises that they cannot keep. Our cities are not utopias. Technology will not save us. Medicine will not save us. Progressivism will not save us. Uh, flourishing a flourishing economy will not save us. The next election will not save us. Jesus is standing next to trees that are making promises that they cannot keep, and he's pronouncing a curse. And the disciples are saying, why did that work for you? How is it that your prayers work, Jesus? Why are your prayers so powerful, Jesus? They cannot help themselves. This is the ache of humanity to pray, to be seen, to be heard, for the God of the universe to do something about our deepest sorrow, about our deepest wound, about our deepest loneliness, for the God of the universe to upend the lie that we have been clinging to. Everybody prays. Everybody wants their prayers to work. But how does prayer work? Jesus finally had their attention, and I love, I love what Jesus does here. 
He's the master. It's a stroke of genius. Like an engineer walking into a complex automotive plant that's just not working. He takes a can of spray paint and he sprays an X right where the heart of the problem is. And he charges $10,000 for that X. And they ask him to itemize it. And he says, $2 for the can of spray paint. 9998 for knowing where to put it. Jesus knows right to what to do. He knows exactly what words to say next. And if you don't listen, you won't hear. So for those who have ears to hear, what does Jesus say next? He looks at them, and I think with a smile, simply says, have faith in God. That's not a very satisfying answer, is it? It sounds very trite. It sounds very there, there. It sounds like something anybody would say, not the creator of the universe. Have faith in God. But did they still have faith in God? Their beautiful temple was built by manipulation, exploitation, and domination on the backs of slave labor by Herod, the king. Your nation is being dominated by Rome. You fear for the future of your families because of religious bickering and the violence at the hand of the government that's supposed to protect you only seems to be getting worse. Do you have faith in God, Peter? Disciples? friends. But Jesus does not ask this question in a condemning way. This is an invitation. This is an authoritative commendation. The master of the house is inviting you in. Have faith in God. As if to say, don't you know? Don't you know? You can still trust God with your prayers. You can still have more than wishful thinking about your future. You can do something with your hopelessness. You can take all your hopes and fears and realign them to a bigger story. The story that says that God sees the story that says that God is up to something. The story that says that God wants better for you than you want for yourself. The story that says that God is bigger than you and your circumstances. But he deeply, intimately cares about your circumstances. How does prayer work, Jesus? Have faith. In God, And more to the point, many commentators point out that this can actually be translated in, in a mind-blowing way. I still can't get over this. What Jesus is actually saying is have the faith of God. Have the God kind of faith. Have the Jesus kind of faith. Jesus is saying, what I just did, you can do. You can pray for effective prayers. You can 
have the kind of intimacy with God, the abiding with God that leads to effectiveness in prayers. Everybody wants prayers that work, but do you know how prayer works? Have the faith of God. Most world philosophies and religions keep their followers at arm's length just out of reach. Answered prayer for them is just one step away. If I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that bigger house, if I could just get my body right, if I could just get my money right, if I could just get uh, married, if I could just get over my last marriage, if I could just manage this addiction, but not Jesus. Jesus fills the gap, and he reaches out his hand, and he says, follow me. Have faith in God. Have the faith of God. He doesn't tell his disciples, get your act together, or maybe someday when you're mature enough. This is an invitation. You can do what I do. You can be like me. You can have the faith of God. Here in the last few days of Jesus' life, it seems like he's turned up the volume and the frequency on talking about prayer. Have you considered how absurd Jesus' promises are about prayer? Jesus says astounding things about prayer, like the verses we just read. Whosoever shall say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe those things which he says will come to pass, will have whatsoever he says. There's that kind of power available in words. How is it possible, Jesus? The Greek of have faith in God is actually a continuous action verb. It's not just a one-time thing, just like a one-time gift. It's, it's a continuous action. It's Jesus is tapping them into the source of faith, a vast river of faith, a river that just keeps coming with faith and keeps coming with faith and keeps coming with opportunities to have faith. So it's have faith and 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 have faith. Have faith today. Have faith tomorrow. When you lose faith, have faith again. When you're discouraged, have faith again. When you when you get a bad news, a bad diagnosis, have faith again. When things don't go the way you think they should go, Jesus is saying, it's okay, it's okay. Pick it back up. Map into the God of faith and have my kind of faith, the God kind of faith. Sometimes you'll pray prayers like my dad prayed for Moulton Tillman, and Moulton Tillman won't get healed. Sometimes you'll ask God for things that don't happen the way you think they should. There's a voice that's crept in with this verse that tells people that if things don't go the way you think, if you prayed and God didn't seem to answer, you know what the, what the lies are surrounding this truth? You didn't have enough faith. You're not enough. You're disqualified. 
Stiff arm that lie. Renounce the voice of shame that you don't have enough. That's not what Jesus is saying. That is not what Jesus is saying. At every inflection point of your story, Jesus is reaching out a hand and inviting you to a life of faith. With words like whosoever, the image of the mountain thrown into the sea, (laughs) I could spend a lifetime studying what does that mean. There are verses in the Old Testament that talk about mountains being flattened. There are other verses that talk about mountains being thrown into the sea. In Revelation, there's this act of judgment against God's spiritual enemies where the mountains are thrown into the sea. What Jesus is saying is you can trust him with the injustice that you see. You can trust him with your frustrations. You can trust him with your curses. You can trust him with your woes. You can trust him with your unanswered prayers. Have faith. Have the faith of God. Jesus said your faith has the power. Your words have the power to move mountains. You resist the devil and he must flee. When your faith is in God, when you have the faith of God, you have whatsoever you say. Now, it does take spending time with God to get used to this idea. The more you spend time with God, the more you see that God is good. The more you see that you trust him. When when things don't go well and you put your faith in God anyway, he, he expands your heart to see things a little bit differently than you saw before. Last week I told a story of my wife being hit by a a drunk driver, a high driver, something, something. He was under the influence of something. And before, before I walked up to preach, I had a couple of different people say, you left us hanging with that story. What happened at the end of that story? So here's what happened. The police came. The guys didn't have insurance. We were hosed. We lost our car. Nothing we could do. I went home, and that next day, our pastor preached Galatians 3.13 that says, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for you, as is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on you, Stephen, the Gentiles. What is the curse of the law? Well, if you want to know, it's... It's in the book of Deuteronomy. The blessing is available, but then also the curse. In fact, pages and pages of curse. If you don't follow Yahweh, if you, if you, if you don't do these meticulous laws, all these things, bad things are going to happen to you. But now on this side of the cross, those curses are now available as blessings. So I decided to do a little investigative journalism, and I started reading the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. And you know what I found? 
Listen to what one of the curses is. Let me see if I can find it. Hopefully I wrote it down. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I did not write it down. Oh, yes, I did. Okay. Here it is. Listen to this. Your donkey will be taken away from you and not returned. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? Okay, okay. God, I think you're leading me to this passage. Lord, this is not, I mean, this is for my wife. My wife has experienced some kind of injustice. And you said, whatsoever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you have them. You said, whosoever shall say to this mountain believe, uh, and be cast in the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, believe those things which he has come to pass, you shall have whatsoever you say. I don't know how this works. And I've seen some people take this the wrong way. I've seen some people misuse and abuse these words. But God, it's in the Bible, and I trust you. And so God, the curse of the law says that my donkey will be violently taken from me and not returned. That happened. My wife's car was violently taken from her and not returned. So God, I just pray that you give us wisdom. I pray that you show us what to do. I don't know how this works, but I just put it in your hands. That next day, uh, that next week at church, I ran into John Starr. John is a local attorney. He heard about what happened. He said, Stephen, I'm going to do something for you. Give me the information on these guys. You got their, their driver's license information? I said, yeah, we got it. He said, okay, I don't think these guys have any way of paying you back. They don't have insurance. There's nothing you can do. So I, I'm just going to put something on the books here that in, in case anything ever comes up, your, your name is attached to it. I said, okay, all right, go for it. One year passes, nothing. Two year passes, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years passes. Ten years later to the month, John Starr calls and says, hey, Stephen, guess what? Three times the amount of the car was returned to Ruth. And now she doesn't drive a 1987 BMW. She drives a 2007 Cadillac. <laughs> That's not the ending you were hoping for. <laughs> it's not about getting good things. It's about Jesus. It's about the fact that he sees you. I almost didn't tell that story because I, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's not about getting more stuff. It's about getting Jesus. It's about getting God. It's about having the faith of God. It's about being shaped into the image of Jesus. And by the way, if you haven't heard us say it yet, we believe you have a destiny. Our conviction about you is that you have a destiny. And that destiny is this. You will be shaped into the image of Jesus. Following Jesus is not just about getting good things, about having a better life. It's about becoming. It's not just about believing in Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's about becoming like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I have done my best. I have labored to try to exegete this text, to try to understand it. 
And Lord, I thank you for, though my words are limited, your spirit is not. Nothing is impossible with you. Lord, I just pray that as we meditate these words throughout this week, that you will bring to our memory the fact that you're a good God and that you have an open invitation to us that no matter what's happened in our lives, we can trust you. We can grow in faith. We can map on to that river of goodness in the person of Jesus. Over the next few moments, I just want to invite you into a moment of surrender. We're going to worship God. We're going to respond to what God has said through his word today. We're going to respond to his goodness. We're going to map right on to his truth. And I just invite you to practice this idea of just putting your faith in Jesus. If you've had, if you have worry, if you have something wrong with your body, if you have someone in your life that um, is far from God, fill that gap with faith. Let's worship Jesus together and let's respond in faith.